you are opening up your Bibles, please, if you would, to the 23rd Psalm. Probably the most familiar psalm in the whole Psalter, in the whole book. Uh, in terms of our familiarity with it, I would put it up there with John 3.16 uh, and with other texts like that. Um, it's one that you've heard a lot in different places, I don't doubt. Some of you intentionally probably memorized it as children. I know I did. In fact, I can promise you that for many of you, there's probably a lot that you know about this psalm just by the nature of its familiarity. And I, I don't mean this in a, in a glib, silly sort of way, but, but knowing a lot about Psalm 13 is, is, is good at parties, so to speak, because everybody's familiar with it. You can have a lot to say about it. And so a lot of you, you just, perhaps independently from hearing sermons or whatever else, have sought to educate yourself on the meaning of this psalm. I am continually surprised by, in, in bringing up this psalm in conversation, how much information just any, any of you might have. Things that you've learned about this psalm from one book or another. That familiarity has not always been so. Even if, even if you were to look at um, older, more ancient Christian funeral liturgies, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty hard to find a funeral liturgy these days or a graveside liturgy that doesn't contain the 23rd psalm. Uh, but actually, before about 17 or 1800s, this psalm was not present in a lot of funeral liturgies. The reason for that, I think, is that Westerners tend to, to be, in our modern age, more individualistic. And since Psalm 23 has such a strong focus on the individual, right? The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd guides me. Even when I walk through the valley, it's not so much we, we, us, as it is I, I, me. And so we become familiar with it. I think in part, not the only reason, but in part for that reason, it's a good psalm to know. It's a really good one to have in your back pocket in all seasons of life. You probably know, though, that over-familiarity with a, with a text can have a side effect of detachment from the text. We sort of skim it quickly. We kind of, kind of yeah, 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 I, I know this one already. So I would ask you to suspend that impulse this morning and try and hear the psalm in a fresh way. Hear it not just as some creedal formation that, or something that we say at a funeral, but as the confession of your heart, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, as, as I said, a lot of you know a lot about this psalm. I promise I'm not going to get to all the things you think I ought to say about it. Because there's a whole lot to be read and learned about it. We're, what, what we're going to cover this morning is not exhaustive. But hopefully, I pray, by the Lord's mercy, sufficient. Sufficient for the week ahead of us. <clears throat> so if you will read it with me. The Psalm of David, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Immediately upon the reading of verse 1, you know we're going to be talking about a shepherd metaphor. It's the dominant metaphor in the psalm. 
Shepherd metaphors were actually common in the ancient world for both gods and kings. In fact, they were associated so much with kingship that it would not be wrong, I mean, to be just one substituted for the other. If, if, uh, if you claim to be a shepherd in the societal sense, you're claiming to be a king. I mean, unless you're actually taking care of sheep on a hillside, the, the term shepherd who shepherds his people was a kingship term, such that when Jesus in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd, all of the crowds listening would have heard, I am the good king. But this psalm begins with these two amazing propositions or declarations. Yahweh is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Let's look at those together. David begins by calling God my shepherd. And so the picture he gives us here is that of God being shepherd of his people. So, not a big stretch to say the people, therefore, are imagined to be sheep. Okay? It's good to remember there are lots of metaphors or pictures for how we might describe God and His people, the church. And I think also that depends on how you see things, how you see the church, how you see God, how you see this relationship between God and His people. If you see the church, for instance, as a business primarily, where religious goods and services are distributed, then the church isn't really sheep in need of shepherding. The church is more a purveyor or a seller of religious experiences and information downloads in the form of sermons with a budget and some hired help. Or you might use the metaphor of a family. It's a very popular one to speak of the church as a family. And if that's your metaphor, your focus is going to be on relationships and fellowships and activities and time together. It's not a bad metaphor. It comes right out of the New Testament, which gives us the language of brother and sister to refer to each other. You might say the church is like a hospital. And so your priority is going to be on what to do with wounded and hurting people. Or... You might say, as Paul did at one point, that the church is like a gymnasium. So your focus is going to be on training up and discipling people so they are strengthened and made steady by the Word of God. See, our our metaphors, here's my point, our, our metaphors that we use shape not only what we focus on, but how we understand things as important as God and His people. If you think of God mainly as king and sovereign, you might, might, under uh, not underestimate, underemphasize his fatherly compassion and care. Same if you think of God mainly as the judge of all the earth. Indeed, he is. But if that's where all your focus is, the, the fatherhood and the mercy of God is going to be less clear if that's where all the focus is. Or if you think of God mainly as father. Well, if if that gets, let's say, 98% of the focus, then God as judge of all the earth is going to be less clear, perhaps even unfamiliar. So here David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, David himself, being a shepherd, knew a thing or two about this. Shepherding was not easy work. I know maybe you have the picture in your head of like a shepherd, you know, who has the sort of job where you can take a nap on the hillside every pleasant afternoon. But no, it actually was very hard work. The the shepherd was to his flock a guide, a protector, a thinker, an organizer, a disciplinarian, and a physician. So what does it mean to be part of God's flock, to be one of God's sheep? 
Well, one thing I want to say that it means just from the get-go, from the outset, is that it means that God gives us His comfort. If you can think of uh, Heidelberg 1, right? What, What is your only comfort in life and death? As opposed to Westminster Shorter, which begins with, what is the chief end of man? Now, those are two perfectly fine places to start a catechism. But why does the Heidelberg start with what is your only comfort? Why does Heidelberg start by talking about comfort? Because comfort is, and the comfort that God gives is actually one of the major themes in the Scripture. And so, what does it mean that we have the comfort of God? One of the first things it means that I want to show you this morning is that we have contentment. One of the very things that I think, Brian, that you were talking about a moment ago, contentment in the midst of circumstances and joy and gladness in the midst of heavy and saddening circumstances, David begins with a declaration, the Lord is my shepherd, and I think based on the way the sentence is structured in Hebrew and in English, you can put therefore in between the two clauses. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore, and for that reason, I shall not want. Okay? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. That is, I lack nothing. Or one translation, I have all that I need. That's what it means. He has all he needs. Why? Because the Lord is his shepherd. And the rest of the psalm, this is how I want you to think of it, the rest of the psalm is proving and vindicating verse 1. Okay? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Prove both of those things. Okay, you got it, verses 2 through 6. Okay? So let's look at it through that lens. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let me show you why that's true. First reason, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now immediately, you're thinking of sheep, so your mind goes to food and drink, and rightfully so. But it's interesting to note that shepherds have told us that sheep don't normally lie down to eat and drink. They eat and drink standing. But the text says, not only I lie down in green pastures, He makes me lie down. He makes me to lie down. They remain, but sheep, uh, so, so has it, if sheep remain standing, well, again, so then the question comes, well, why, do they, why are they always remaining standing? Well, especially if they're worried or anxious or if there's danger about, they don't lie down to eat. But apparently, these sheep with this shepherd do. Because they are content. They are protected. They are unafraid. The pasture they have is green and the water they have is still. That is not dangerous or rushing by such that if the sheep goes to take a drink, he's going to get swept up in the current. And God's provision and protection then are the main themes of this psalm. Provision and protection are the banners that wave high over these words. Now, I know that some of you have probably read books or perhaps online articles where someone has tried to make the stupidity of sheep the main focus of the 23rd Psalm. Okay? I, I hear this a lot whenever we talk about Psalm 23. Somebody says, you know what's funny about sheep? They're really stupid. They're just dumb. Dumb animals. Now, perhaps they are. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. But I just want to say, for whatever it's worth, the focus of the psalm is not our stupidity. The focus of the psalm is actually our need. You can be stupid and still be really proud and not know your need. (laughs) The focus of the psalm is not that the sheep are dim-witted. The focus of the psalm is that without the shepherd, the sheep are 
quite literally, dead meat. And so the first thing that our shepherd, our king, our God, through David, tells us is that he is indeed our shepherd. We shall not want. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Brian. You just said the psalm was about our need. Yes. And the place where it begins is, you need to not want. (laughs) You need to not want. How does that make sense? It does if you think about it for just a minute. How much, think of it this way, how much does your heart and your spirit long to not be so captive to all your impulses and wants and desires? How much does your spirit long for that? To actually be comforted sufficiently so that your, your wants don't own you and run you. We need these words today because we are a people, broadly speaking, of great discontent. And we dwell in a land of discontent. We have so much and we are content with so little. One of the things I think some forms of social media has done for us is it's allowed us to see what all sorts of different people, ourselves included, do to try to find fulfillment and recognition. So many are longing for a deep sense of fulfillment and a deep sense of identity, and so they might do it through, uh, what, spending lots of money and then putting pictures of it up to show everybody, or extravagant travel, or, or pleasure, or constantly building up their own property. And this is such blindness because God has told us time and time again in His Word that he who seeks to find himself and discover himself and to identify himself and to fulfill himself in these things is lost already. Because in God's kingdom, you actually find yourself by losing yourself. You live by dying. It's one of the most basic rules in God's kingdom. Starting in 2011... The, uh, the Lowe's, uh, Lowe's Home Improvement Store came out with a new slogan for all their commercials. I think it's still the central slogan for their brand. Does anybody know what it is? Never stop improving. I shall not want, indeed. Never stop improving. Now, there's a sense in which, like, morally and ethically and in terms of sanctification, you want that to be true of yourself and, and other people. But I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say you can also hear that is never be satisfied with what you have. Never rest and rejoice in what God has given you. Whatever is around you, take a look around. It's not enough. And in reply, David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Two more reasons why I shall not want. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) I thought this was a sheep metaphor. Are we saying sheep have souls? I ain't going there. (laughs) I'm going to say, allow David some poetic flexibility here to understand the point. In the ancient word, at world, the word, sorry about that. In the ancient world, the word for soul could also mean a person's life or self. It's also really interesting, just as an aside, to note that the word for soul in Hebrew is also the word for breath. So one, one commentator speculated that you could translate this as he restores my breath, the idea being he moves me from panic and fear and anxiety to rest. Right? 
an interesting idea. I'm going I'm to leave that up to speculation. But I think he's getting at something else. You might understand this verse simply, He restores me and sets me in the right. Paths of righteousness or paths of rightness. It can be translated either way. He restores me and sets me on the right way. Okay? <clears throat> Again, in the ancient world, shepherds would refer to sheep sometimes as being cast. C-A-S-T, cast. And if you're a sheep and you get cast, that is not good. What it, what it is, what, what cast means, is that, uh, well, it means that the sheep has become rather pathetic and rather sorry. It's what happens when a sheep leans too, too far forward or, or slips kind of on some uneven ground and tips itself over onto its back. Okay? And because the poor thing is so top-heavy, it is impossible for it to right itself again. Think of like when a turtle falls over. So it just lays there on the ground, feet up in the air, hollering and crying out. Now that is a funny image, I confess. When I first read of it and imagined it, I laughed. But then it gets kind of spooky, scary. What happens if it remains too long is actually pressure in its stomach starts to cut off circulation to legs. And if it's really hot that day, the sheep has a matter of hours before it's dead. If it's a cooler day or if there's lots of rain, maybe it has days. Do you see why part of being a shepherd, it was constantly counting the flock, right? numbering the flock, making sure you still had the same number you left with? They were trying to make sure that none of the sheep had tripped and had fallen and had been cast and now they're upside down screaming for help. And so David says, he restores my life. And sets me on the right path. You see? Like an overturned sheep, I had no hope. I was as good as dead. I could not help myself. He came and restored my life and set me on the right path. Hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. I shall be turned right side up. (laughs) And I, I do wonder when the psalmist in Psalm 42 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? I wonder if he's speaking of that same sense of the sheep being cast upside down, can't help myself, can't get out of this. And so it is that in life we will often be, as it were, flipped upside down by our sin, by our lust, or by our pride, or by our money, or by the desperate need to be recognized. Or we get, we get locked into patterns of laziness and carelessness. Or we distance ourselves from fellowship? Or we bury unconfessed sin? And we become pretty easy prey for the enemy at that point. Lying there upside down unless our shepherd comes and turns us right side up. So that we can be led in right paths. Paths of righteousness. Paths that the Lord has laid out for us in His Word, the straight path that He means for us to walk on. Why? Look at the text. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. For His name's sake. This is one of the most important concepts in the whole Bible. That all God does, He does for the sake of His own great name. His own everlasting 
reputation, his own eternal praises. This is where the whole Bible is going, by the way. The whole, the whole Bible is escorting us, as it were, leading us down this right path to a day where all the nations will honor God and will rejoice to see his kingdom come. If this God is, is indeed worthy of all of that rejoicing and praise, then he must act for the sake of his own name. If he is not worthy, then all of this is worthless. But as Christians, we long for our God to be praised and worshipped by all. All means all. (laughs) And so everything we do is for His name's sake. I mean, don't you want stories of God's faithfulness to tell your children and your grandchildren? Do you want stories of His kindness and His goodness and His restoration, and His rescue. I've got good news for you. He is doing all things for His namesake to supply you with such stories. He will put stories and songs on your lips of His faithfulness for your good and for His glory, for the sake of His name. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's a really odd turn, isn't it? I mean, think about what we just read. Connect the verses in the psalm. I'm on a path of righteousness. Why has it gotten dark and scary all of a sudden? I thought He was leading me on paths of righteousness, right paths. But by the look of things, I'm on wrong path. (laughs) I'm on wrong street. This is This is frightening. I thought my shepherd was leading me in good paths, not paths of darkness. Why are we in this valley where I can't see much? And I know for a fact this is where wolves and predators hide. But David isn't really asking that question here. He's not asking uh, if if it should show something to us, that is, being in the valley. Very often, the paths of righteousness, the right paths that God is leading you down, will include valleys of struggle and difficulty and darkness. But how does David answer the darkness? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's talk about that for a minute. The shepherd's rod was basically a club or a a cudgel. It was a weapon, and it was carried on the belt mainly used for self-defense or sheep defense. Sometimes to give the sheep a little smack if they were uncooperative, but also to drive away the robbers and the wolves. The staff you've seen before, it's the, it's the staff with the shepherd's crook on it. It was a walking stick with that hook on the end used for, let's just say, redirection, right? Back onto the correct path. And so think about this metaphor. David wants you, the sheep, to confess even when I walk through times that are dark and even deadly. And it's so dark, I can't see my shepherd. That's the point. Valley of the shadow of death, valley of the darkness, I can't see my shepherd. I don't know where he's gone, but I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, but I can't see you right now. How do I know you're with me? Because your rod and staff guide me. Your correction, your discipline, your guidance guide me and comfort me. 
So, dearly beloved, where do we find God's comfort and correction and guidance for us? In His Word. Thank you, Will. In His Word, nearly every page has for us guidance, correction, revelation, glory, promises. In God's law and gospel, we find correction that disciplines us and mercy that comforts us and guides us back onto the path. But I don't want to just brush over David's explicit mention of death here, valley of the shadow of death. David's also speaking of not being afraid to die. Right? I pass through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Some of you know that the last hours of life, I would say rather unfortunately, is where sometimes the enemy tries to do his harshest work. And to shake the faith of people who have been on the path of righteousness their whole life. So here's David saying, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear any evil. You are with me. How much more can this be said of us after the resurrection of Christ who are waiting for the day when all the dead are raised again? It's interesting to me that in Puritan times, a lot of the Puritans they, they, they wrote entire books on how a Christian should die. <laughs> That's not a conversation we want to have so much today. We kind of try to keep death far from us. If it gets mentioned, we try to change the subject as quickly as possible. The Puritans, though, wrote whole books on how to die as a Christian. Even some of them almost seeming to state plainly, if, if you want a good look at how big our God is, come and watch Christians die. Because they knew... That there was power in a man who with his last breath, knowing all the terrors of hell, had already been beaten down with the cudgel of the Lord, trusted in God and said, If I stray, there is your staff to bring me back. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Still in the valley... I've got enemies, but apparently I'm not going to die because the Lord is going to keep feeding me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Some people think this shepherd metaphor ends here because, well, sheep don't eat at tables. (laughs) I, I don't think we need to assume the shepherding metaphor has come to an end, though. The shepherds certainly provide their flocks with food and make sure they get into the green pastures. The point is that we've gone from being in the valley of death to being surrounded in the valley of death. My enemies are here. I'm in the midst of some danger. And what am I doing in the midst of danger? Well, apparently verse 5 says, I'm feasting. They've got nothing on me. They've got nothing on me. Do you see the, the profound power in that picture? I'm surrounded by my enemies. And how do I respond? I gather around the Lord's table, around the Lord's provision, around the Lord's bounty, and I feast because the same shepherd who fed me in the green pastures is the one who's feeding me in the valley. These are words that we will need in times of persecution. My enemies surround me. And when they come knocking on my door, you know what they find me doing? Eating and drinking and rejoicing. So I come to the feast. And my shepherd king anoints my head with oil. What's that about? Well, 
in the ancient world, if you were going to a really, let's say, upscale feast of a very wealthy person, upon arrival, you would be given a kind of oil to, uh, to put on your head and face. And in the dry, arid heat of a place like Jerusalem and surrounding areas, that oil would freshen up your face. It would restore your color and it would uh, smell nice, like cologne or perfume. However, there was also a kind of oil that shepherds would put on the face of their sheep. And it would keep the bugs out of their face. Even, and I, I apologize, this is kind of gross, but even the types of bugs that would try to crawl up the sheep's nose and nest there. Ooh, right? The oil would keep those bugs from landing on the sheep's face. So what do we have here then? Well, between table and anointing oil, we have security and provision of the shepherd. You see? The, we're not merely surviving. We're thriving in the midst of our enemies. The shepherd calls me to his table. He renews my smile with fresh oil for my face. He puts food and drink in front of me. And oh, by the way, my cup overflows. It's yet one more reason I can say, the Lord is my shepherd, no want shall I know, because my cup is overflowing with His kindness. My God feeds me, my God protects me, He anoints my face with oil so the nasty bugs of sin, let's say, can't get inside and nest. He's poured out the oil of His Holy Spirit on us, such that, I mean, this is one of the great gifts of God, such that I start to hate my sin more and more. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy. I will say mercy here, at least just by itself, is, is perhaps not the best translation. It's, it's, it's kind of started in the King James, and it's what a lot of later translations have stuck with. Uh, this, is that, this is that word, that, the Hebrew word for steadfast love. Or as I, I prefer, I'm, I'm with those who say you'd be fine to translate this term covenant love. Love based on God's promises. That as I walk through the valley, I might have trouble seeing my shepherd. But here's what I know. He's going to feed me. He's going to protect me. He's going to keep me on the way, rod and staff. And if I hear ominous footsteps right behind me, are those my enemies sneaking up to kill me? No, those are His goodness, His covenant mercy and love, pursuing me, staying with me, keeping pace with me all the days of my life. David closes the psalm by saying that the Lord's goodness and covenant love, covenant mercy, will pursue him all the days of his life, and that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Hebrew there is literally, I mean, if you've got the ESV, you've got it in your footnotes. The, the word dwell is probably better re return to dwell. There's a sense of coming back to dwell in the house of the Lord for all the length of my days. Now, house of the Lord is temple language. It's gathering language. It's God's people, God's sheep gathered into uh, one place to worship the Lord language. 
In other words, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to call it church language. David is saying, God's goodness and covenant love is going to be right behind me as I walk so that I know I'm going to keep on coming home to God and to His people forever and ever. And so I want you to see that, I mean, this sounds obvious, but Psalm 23 is in there for a very good reason. It is comfort upon comfort upon comfort for weary, troubled, frustrated, frightened hearts. And just so you know, a lot of times you will pray psalms and you'll sing psalms, Lord willing, and it's not lying to say what's not true of you right now, even as you hope it'll be true of you in the next hour or tomorrow. So what, what I mean is that if you are in a season and a time where you are walking through the valley of the shadow and your soul is terrified, it's not lying to pick up Psalm 23 and to sing, I will not fear. Even as you're like, I want that to be true of me and we're not there yet. Fair enough, fine enough, go ahead and sing it and you'll find that's one of God's instruments to escort you into being able to confess that. It is comfort upon comfort for frightened hearts to say, I will fear no evil. It is comfort for broken hearts who want to say, He restores my soul. It is comfort for confused hearts who want to say, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. It is comfort for paranoid hearts who long to say, His goodness and His covenant love are following me all the days of my life. You see, that that line is meant to replace something. The, the, The goodness and covenant mercy, covenant love following me. It's because you have a view of the world where you think something is following you, right? Some of you are, are kind of gripped by the idea that bad things are always following you around, right? I just know, like, well, that's just kind of why I'm here. Bad stuff happens to me, right? You're waiting for the next shoe to drop, and God wants you to confess His goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life. We gain a deeper sense then of Jesus' own words in John 10 when He says, I am the good finish it. Shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And and what does Jesus base that on? I am the good shepherd because I lay my life down for the sheep. I lay my life down for the sheep. So in the person of Jesus Christ, we come face to face with the same shepherd of Psalm 23 who lays down his life for the sheep because This bursts open the metaphor because He is the shepherd who comes down from heaven to be a sheep. To walk with the sheep. To live among them. To die as one of them. To be for us the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who walks and who has walked for you through the valley of the shadow of death. With no table, no oil, and no friends. Who, is, who was silent in the presence of His enemies and who shed all His blood to forgive all our sins, who rises again to conquer the valley of the shadow of death, that His people indeed could say, we will dwell with Him in Zion forever. So that's why we sing these things. That's why the Lord has given to us 
good words like those found in Psalm 23 for us to sing and a place for us to bank our hope and our trust. I say again to you, though, I want you to notice something. I started this sermon by pointing out that Psalm 23 is much beloved by many people for good reason. One of the reasons being, man, it's just, it's just painted with comfort far and wide. It's drenched in comfort, right? It's also in the first person so that you can, in fact, be by yourself, as it were, praying this psalm. And it's in the first person, so it fits. That also comes with it a reality that we must always be reminding ourselves of, that in all of our joy, and it should be great joy to speak of us as being the church and the covenant family of God, all households gathered together to worship our Lord, this is the reality. On judgment day, you will not be judged by what family you belong to or what nation you belong to, or whether you went through the new members class, or whether you, you or, or fill in the blank, what, what you will be judged by on judgment day is, did you know the good shepherd? Did you believe in his words? Did you believe in his words? Did you rest in him as the only comfort you have in life and in death? This is indeed our only hope. And so, again, we confess it together. Again, we place our hope in our shepherd who's died and risen again that we might forever be able to say, valley of the shadow of death, my shepherd's already conquered it. I will not be afraid. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we thank you for the promises here and that by them, I pray you would excite our hearts and comfort our spirits. I pray especially, Lord, for those who are, as it were, just covered by anxiety this morning and fear and who, who need and desire and, and want to be able to say, I will not fear for you are with me. So I pray that you would give that to weary hearts this morning. Here at your table, I pray you would sustain them, encourage them, strengthen them. Not for us, O oh Lord, but for your name's sake, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.